Welcome to Myth versus Craft. My brother Luis often discovered new interests and then proceeded to spend countless hours learning as much as he could about them. Besides his thirst for knowledge, Luis had a deep appreciation for quality and craftsmanship. He disregarded pretense and notoriety. He instead found joy in discovering little-known companies that just happened to do great work. In hindsight, it's not surprising that these qualities eventually led to his fascination with mechanical watches. At some point in early 2014, Luis started sending me occasional articles about watches. He spent the rest of his days learning about them, planning how to collect them, and persistently attempting to convince me to buy a mechanical watch. His best resource was the online magazine Hodinkee, which I'm pretty sure he visited at least once a day, every single day. Hence, I consider it a privilege to have had a chance to speak with the founder and executive producer of Hodinkee, Mr. Benjamin Clymer. At one point in our conversation, Ben said that when he's into something, he goes really deep very quickly. My brother would have nodded in agreement. A quick word of caution. This episode is not aimed at serious watch enthusiasts. Though we did talk about watches, my questions were very basic, and we spent just as much time talking about Ben's background, his interest in journalism, and his passion for vintage cars. Here we go. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, it's completely my pleasure. Honored to be here. I read that your father was a photographer and you developed an early fascination with his light meters. Yep. Were you mechanically inclined as a kid? Did you take stuff apart and try to rebuild it? Yeah, you know, I, I was always into, uh, you know, first kind of like Legos and, and Brio and things like that, which were, you know, really kind of superficial, um, you know, uh, assembly sets. And then, you know, deeper, deeper erector sets and, and so on and so forth were, were something that I was interested in as, as a child. But, but to me, it, it came down to, I remember, as you mentioned, my father was a photographer, he handed me a light meter, and it was this idea of this thing that had a, a gauge on it or a dial on it, but was also handheld. And there was just something about kind of this, this compact but incredibly powerful and useful tool, um, you know, in, in your hand that, that just kind of resonated with me. And then from there, you know, obviously light meters became a thing of the past, you know, not, not too far after that. Uh, I then got into Boy Scouts and camping and, and things like that. And the, the, the compass uh, became kind of the next obsession so in Boy Scouts, we had, you know, the standard issue, whatever, Boy Scout compass, that was $10, $15. Uh, I began to collect vintage compasses that I would find at Goodwill stores or military surplus stores or garage sales, things like that. So the compass was kind of the next handheld gauge. Uh, and all the while, the, the wristwatch was, was something I was interested in. You know, obviously, I, I didn't really understand. Uh, you know, my father was not a, a watch type per se. I mean, he wore, you know, a, a Seiko or a Timex or something like that. So I didn't really understand what, what a mechanical watch was until a little bit later. But I was into, you know, I had a Swiss Army watch that was that was quartz, but it was you know, for a, you know a thirteen year old, it was it was a very nice watch. So I was interested in in watches for sure. I had uh, an Eddie Bauer uh, camping pocket watch that you would clip on the outside of your backpack. It was waterproof. Uh, you know, I, I was into those things kind of organically. Uh, and then over time, you know, things just kind of developed. And then when I was sixteen, my my grandfather, who who was you know something of an idol to me and somebody I was very close with, gave me his Omega. Speedmaster, which at the time, you know, still to this day is an amazing watch. Uh, and that is what really, really got me going. Had you paid much attention to your grandfather's watch before he gave it to you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember he knew. So he was the only guy in my life that had, uh, I'll say, nice things. You know, he was 
he'd done well for himself. You know, my, my parents were, were great people and are great people, but they just, they just didn't focus on, on, we'll call them luxury things. It wasn't about a nice car or anything. They were, they were kind of more creative and more into what, you know, just different things. So we lived in upstate New York. It was just a different world. So my grandfather had this, you know, slightly more luxurious taste drove a, an old Mercedes and, and wore Rolex and things like that. So that, that obviously just intrigued me because it was different. You know, it wasn't necessarily the cost or anything like that. I just, when, when he would hand me his, his gold Rolex, I could just feel the weight and I could understand that this was something special, something different. And the Omega was his everyday watch. It wasn't a professional. It wasn't, you know, a great mood watch or anything like that. But it was a watch that, that he wore the most during the, the time that I remember him. Uh, so this was the, the 1990s. You know, I was born in the 80s uh, and growing up in the 90s as, as a teenager. Uh, it was an automatic Speedmaster, and you know he would when I would go down to see him in Florida or here in New York or Long Island, he would let me wear it for a few days. I mean, he knew that I really was fascinated, but it had great colors and it was a chronograph, it was automatic, so I had I, I knew the watch intimately for sure. Uh, and then um, they were selling a house in in Long Island, and uh, he just took it off his wrist and, and handed it to me. Uh, so I was obviously beside myself, and and that, that's the watch that, as I've said many times in, in other interviews, and that's the watch that is most uh, impactful and meaningful to me for sure. Later on, you attended Syracuse University, and mm-hmm. I believe you studied business and computer science. Did you major in both? Yeah, I did a dual degree, uh, went to Syracuse on a, on a full scholarship and kind of really wanted to try a bunch of different things. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Rochester, so Syracuse is kind of right down the road. Uh, and, you know, with a scholarship, it allowed me to kind of explore more things. So I was able to to do a lot of stuff on the, in the entrepreneurial kind of division of the management school, which later became the Whitman School of Management. Uh, and then IST, Information Studies, Computer Science. Uh, so we did, I did both. I was always into technology. I was always into business. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I started out as a finance major, which I quickly realized was, was not me at all. I'm not a numbers person. But I kind of created my, my own um, agenda and my own kind of curriculum. Uh, I spent my entire third year uh, abroad at, at Oxford, uh, which is, is an uncommon kind of path. So I, I spent a whole year away from school, then came back for senior year and kind of did my own thing. Uh, I spent most of my senior year working on different entrepreneurial projects, which I was lucky enough to, to get school credit for uh, because some of them were successful. And at the time, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors at Syracuse were, were kind of a big deal. And so we got to go to some national competitions and things like that. Uh, so that was senior year was, was a fun year because it wasn't me sitting in classrooms. It was me building out ideas. Uh, and none of those ideas you know, kind of came to anything afterwards. I think Still, they're, they're decent ideas, but you know they weren't businesses. I was I was a child and didn't really understand kind of the next steps. And then from there, I went into uh, strategy consulting for a firm uh, down here in New York when I graduated. How did you end up working there? Uh, it's funny. I was I was a part of this thing called Delta Sigma Pi, which is uh, I guess a national or international business fraternity. So it wasn't a traditional frat. It, this was really kind of a business nerds uh, frat. And, you know, they had, uh, there was a job board uh, at, at the Syracuse chapter, and I saw the, this company called Aquis, which I, I hadn't heard of, uh, but it was, turns out it was kind of a spinoff of some, some larger consulting co- uh, companies. I went down, interviewed, and it was, it was kind of a, a great gig. I mean, it was, it was really as good of a job as I could have hoped for coming uh, out of school. Uh, you know, I got to be in New York. Aquis had some really high-end clients, including Pfizer and the U.S. government and things like that. And, you know, I was 22, 23 years old. And got to be sitting in the boardroom with, at times, you know, the, the CEO of Pfizer, you know, and this was the time when Pfizer, for example, lost uh, their patent on Lipitor, which was, you know, an $18 billion drug. It was the most valuable drug in the history of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and right when they, and this was gutting to the company, of course. So to be in the room when, when, when they lost that and then they had a replacement drug 
I forget the name of it, but it didn't pass uh, FDA approval. And it was really kind of a dramatic time to be uh, involved with Pfizer. I spent about two years on a project there. I did about a year or maybe half a year at um, a company called GHI, which is a medical uh, provider. And they were working with uh, Medicaid and Medicare. So I worked with the U.S. government, built some websites for them. Uh, and it, it was a great time. I met some some great people there. And I'm still close with, with one of the partners or ex-partners of the company. And it, it was it was a great kind of first job that, that exposed me to a lot of different things, for sure. Within a few years, the 2008 recession hit. You had, uh, I understand you had little to do at work. You yeah. weren't particularly happy at your job at the time. Right. And you, you had the free time. You were into watches. You liked to write. So you started the first version of Hodinkee as, as a hobby. Even before that, so I, I left Aquis, the, the consulting company, uh, on a whim. You know, it was my, my girlfriend at the time had left. She was also working there. And she went off to kind of pursue her thing. And I kind of followed her and said, you know what? Like, I, I don't know what exactly I want to do, but I know it's not this. So even though it was a great job and I was friendly with everybody, I said, you know what, I'm going to try my own thing. So I actually left Aquas and spent three months, three to four months, focusing on a startup back then. Uh, it was actually real estate, like kind of a, an online real estate social network type of thing that I had this idea for with, with two friends. Uh, I spent three or four months kind of working on that, but didn't really know how to take it again to the next level. And then, you know, as I realized that that wasn't necessarily going to go so far, uh, I had this uh, another partner at the consulting company had landed at UBS wealth management. And he said, you know, we always have a place for you here. So I got to go into to UBS at a relatively high level, you know, relatively speaking for a 25 year old, 26 year old and, and work there. And so that was 2008 or so. And this was really right before, I mean, directly a few months before the, the great kind of meltdown of, of 2008. So I went in there with high expectations for, for what I would be doing in terms of workflow and in terms of project management. Uh, and also in terms of, of compensation. Uh, and then, you know, things, uh, the world changed, as they say, and uh, neither of those things happened. Pretty much anyone who's been to a happy hour with me has heard me ramble about the question of how one should decide what to do for a living. Sure. On one hand, there's the Joseph camp of follow your bliss camp. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's the camp of do whatever you have to do to take care of yourself and your family. There's a reason it's called a job. Right. Can you walk me through your thought process when you were deciding if you were going to leave banking to focus full-time on Hodinkee? Yeah, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, it wasn't really a decision between finance, which I knew I hated. I mean, at UBS, my, my first job at Aquas, I, I genuinely enjoyed. And I think had I stayed there for, for my career, I would have been moderately happy. I would have been okay. I, I really enjoyed it. UBS, on the other hand, I did not enjoy at all. And it was something about working for a giant company with, with people that truly just didn't care about you. You weren't numbered to them. And, you know, there's a few hundred thousand employees at UBS. It's a different thing. My consulting company, there were 40 people, and I knew each of them very well. So I was learning quickly that I didn't belong in a large company. So my decision wasn't necessarily between, uh, you know, just a job or, or Hodinkee. It was really, you know, am I going to be in finance my, my entire life. And I realized that, you know, as I started Hodinkee and I began to write more and more, I always kind of fancied myself as a decent writer and did, did well in school and things like that when it came to, to English and, and literature. I realized I, I genuinely like to write. I liked the internet. I like to take photos and I like to write. And so that's when I said, you know, it, it might not be Hodinkee because I truly didn't know it would become anything, uh, even a fraction of what it is today. But do I like writing? Do I like journalism? Do I like photography? Do I like something a little bit more creative? And the answer was a resounding yes. So, I left UBS and started to do Hodinkee full-time, but the, the real big project back then was, was applying to journalism school. Uh, and I really did not think I, I would get in. I only applied to, to one school, to Columbia, because I was here in New York. 
you know, I was writing for Forbes.com. I was doing some, some literature, some book reviews for them. I was doing some writing for GQ.com, uh, Men's Journal Magazine. I was actually doing um, Financial Times How to Spend It back then. And so I was a writer. Uh, and, you know, if Hodinkee, Hodinkee was doing okay. I mean, we were making some money, but certainly not enough to live and certainly not enough to buy a nice watch or anything like that. But I, my, my main goal back then was to get into school. Uh, and I did. Uh, and that was kind of the, the big kind of turning point in terms of my, my parents and, and my friends and family's appreciation for what I was doing. You know, I think Hodinkee and the, the watch thing was a little bit like, oh, this is kind of a fun side project that, you know, he's getting a few interviews here and there, but this, is, this will never be anything. Uh, and then when, when Columbia, you know, arguably, you know, one of the top journalism schools out there accepted me based on this watch project that I had built, I think people started to say, huh, you know, maybe, maybe we're missing something here. Maybe there's something larger here. Um, and so it was really, again, I didn't know that Hodinkee would ever become what it is now with funding from Google and, and you know, a bunch of employees and things like that. But I knew that it, I did not want to be in finance and I did want to be in, in media of some kind. Going into Columbia, what were you hoping to get out of this degree in journalism? Well, you know, like I said, I always kind of fancied myself a, a pretty good writer, but I, I hadn't really been trained on what journalism was. You know, we had English classes in high school and I took some writing classes in college, but it, it was more, it, it was very rudimentary. And, and journalism is very different than writing. Uh, you know, writing fiction, nonfiction is, is a very different thing than, than journalism. Journalism is, is you know, kind of pro provocative and it's something where you have to pry and dig. And that was something that I was not that comfortable with at all before uh, before Columbia. And what I was hoping to get is really just world-class training and how to kind of ask the right questions and how to write a good lead and really get to the bottom of the story very quickly. And at the same time, also, you know, just in terms of meeting people, I mean, the, the network that, that Columbia Journalism School offers is unparalleled. It, it really is. Uh, and, you know, I credit some of the friends and some of the people that I've met there with some of the success that we've had with Odinki. I mean, this is it's a really interesting place where, you know, skills, no matter who you are, where you come from, are rewarded. And there, there's no bullshit. They don't care where you come from. If you do a good job, you, you're going to be rewarded. Uh, and thankfully, I did, excuse me, I did a pretty good job. I mean, I was doing Hodinki full-time while doing that. So I was a little bit, I was not your typical J-School student, where, you know, these guys dreamt of, um, of a desk job with the Times or the Economist or something like that. Like, I already had a, a fledgling business or a, a growing business. That was doing well, and it was in the luxury space, which is not also something that is commonly discussed at the J School. But also what was interesting is that at the time, nobody was teaching entrepreneurial journalism at Columbia. It was all about like getting a job, you know, as I said, getting a job at the desk on, on the New York Times or whatever. Uh, it wasn't about starting your own thing. And so, you know, when a lot of the professors met me and they're like, wait a minute, you, like, you actually you paid for, for Columbia, the, the tuition, with money you made from a watch blog. And you've been <laughs> in the New York Times because of a watch blog. You know, that kind of raised a few eyebrows. And a few of the, the deans and a few of the professors kind of took note and started to ask me a few more questions. I started to get more involved with the entrepreneurial side of things. And I think, you know, the, the future of journalism, I said back then, and I still believe it, is not at all desk job. The last time the New York Times shot me for a story, I was talking to this guy, Damon Winter, who was a staff photographer there. Uh, and he was the very last staff photographer the Times ever hired. And that was, at this point, probably five or six years ago. Wow. So they're not even hiring staff photographers anymore. And this is the New York Times. You know, this is the newspaper. So it's, I, I think the future of all journalism is having something that's your own, whether it's your own blog, whether it's a passion project like Odinky was, or if it's an actual you know, kind of you know, business. Uh, meanwhile, also kind of establishing yourself in, in the mainstream media, which is what I, what I did. You know, when I was writing for Forbes, for example, I was writing for free. I literally was not being paid. And I said, hey, all I ask for is a, a byline that mentions Hodinkee with an active link back to it. Uh, and, you know, I think that was a good way of doing it because 
it established myself to the big brands as a writer for Forbes, which is a meaningful title and certainly even more so was back then, but also drove traffic to something that, that could also pay the bills in a different way with Hodinkee. Um, and so it was a really great experience. And on top of that, I met some, some great people there, one of which is still uh, integrally involved with the, the website today. In an interview you gave a few years ago, you said that you had to spend about 70% of your time building and maintaining the business. Mm-hmm. Last year, Hodinkee merged with Watchville, and your role and responsibilities changed. How do you spend your time now? Yeah, I mean, it's still very much the same, to be totally honest with you. I mean, certainly less involved with the, the day-to-day uh, kind of nitty-gritty of maintaining the business, whereas before, like, I was paying salaries. I was handling our tax situation, the accounting, the, the sales, incoming, outcoming, stuff like that. No longer do I have to do that, which is a huge relief. Um, it really was. Because that is, to be honest with you, stuff I'm not that, that talented at. I'm much more talented at producing content and creating buzz around what we're doing uh, and telling stories. Uh, so now I'm kind of left to do that more and more. It's still because you know the, the site is so associated with me as a person. Uh, I do spend a lot of time talking to brand partners and talking to other people and other publishers about working together. So on some level, it's different in that the nitty-gritty stuff is gone, which is a relief for me, and I think it's business as well. But a lot of what I do is, is, is very much the same. Uh, and I'm still looking for great stories to tell. You know, doing shooting videos with Will, who's a good friend of mine and our producer here, who I actually met at journalism school to do, you know, talk and watch his videos. You know, so it's still very much the same. But it's, it's always been everywhere, always. You know, so I'm kind of going a, a mile a minute, traveling all over the place, meeting with people, seeing new watches, talking about working together. So, I mean, it's still, like, I would say I'm kind of the, the official or unofficial brand ambassador for Hodinkee, whatever that means. I also watched a video of you speaking with Chef uh, Eric Repair about the parallels between crafting a meal and watchmaking. Yeah. You've studied computer science, business, you worked in banking, you did consulting, you've done freelance writing, you launched a massively successful online magazine, you've done a number of different things. Have you found any patterns, skills, or qualities that you think translate very well across all of these fields? Yes and no. I mean, they're all very different things. But I think that the one thing that is so, so underestimated in, in all forms of business and success is just maintaining kind of like a humbleness and like a, an authenticness with everything you do. And it's it's funny, the, the very first time that I did uh, an interview with uh, a watch expert, and I was certainly not a watch expert at the time, I said point blank, I was like, I don't know anything about this stuff. I, I'm interested, but I don't know anything. And the, the guy, his name was Julian. He was an expert at Antiquorum, which was the big auction house at the time. He was like, you know, you're the first watch journalist to, to come right out and say that you don't know anything. And he found that kind of endearing on some level. And I think something that, that has made me successful in, in Hodinkee and elsewhere is that I, I'm not unwilling to admit that I, I don't know things and that I would much prefer to defer to somebody who is a true expert in something than present myself as an expert in something, which I think we see much more now. We have several bloggers in the watch space and elsewhere that, that really tout themselves as, as experts when they're not at all, when they, they don't know really anything about it. It's unbecoming to somebody who's been around for a long time to see an upstart say, hey, I'm, I'm the guy. And I never said that. I still don't call myself an expert, really. Do I know more than most people? For sure. I know a little bit about a lot of things. I'll say that. But I'm not a great expert in any one category. And I never have been, whether it was in consulting or was at UBS or anything. So I, I think remaining kind of humble and, and authentic to people and not presenting yourself with something you're not is massively uh, important because people see through that. You know, people are not idiots. And if you present yourself as a 19-year-old or a 16-year-old as a watch expert, people know that that's bullshit. Like, we just know that there's no way that that's possible. And so the, the willingness for other people to help you and to, to get you to the next position in life, whatever that might be, 
goes away. And I think because I was so kind of forthcoming with, with, with my lack of knowledge and, and my kind of earnestness, people actually wanted me to succeed. You know, they, they wanted to help me. And the, the one other thing that, that was wonderful is that, you know, I entered an industry that was doing really well financially, but didn't have the voice of somebody that, that was thoughtful and careful, but also young. And so I entered an industry that, that needed a voice for, uh, for the, the next generation. And so the brands themselves, for example, became supportive of me because I was, you know, honest and, and earnest about everything that, that we were doing at the time. The way that you interact with people is everything. You know, it's, if people don't like you, they're not going to help you and you're never going to get anywhere unless everybody around you, you know, at least respects you in, in some way. That's interesting in that I typically have musicians, um, mostly guitarists on the show. And many of them have been, for the most part, have been really nice, humble, good guys. And, and thus far, they've all been men. And I've asked them, I've asked a handful if they feel like being nice has been an advantage or a liability trying to make it in the music industry. And the answer thus far has kind of fallen into two camps. One is if you're trying to make it as a sideman and you're trying to get hired by someone else, then yeah, being nice, being being someone that people can can get along with is is crucial because people are always going to hire the musician who is, as I had one guest tell me, the better hang, even if they're not quite as as accomplished or as talented a musician as someone else who they just can't bear being in a bus with. Sure. Then on the other hand, I've had independent artists who are trying to make it on their own and who are not trying to get hired by other people. I had one in particular. He, he's a super nice guy. His name is Philip Says. He's an incredible guitarist. And he told me that he felt that sometimes people mistake kindness for weakness. And that's always kind of intrigued me in that I try to be kind and nice to people and sometimes wonder how far that gets you. And it's kind of refreshing to hear you say that you feel that's important as well. I do. You know, I, I think in life, people people have to like you. I, I mean, music and entertainment is, is a totally different world than, than, than probably the world that you, are, that you or I live in. So I, I understand that. But at the same time, like, you know, I am always respectful of other people. But at the same time, if somebody asks me a question, they say, okay, what makes you different from X, Y, and Z, another blog or another website, another whatever, I'll just tell them very candidly the truth. And, you know, and I think when, when you have the confidence in what you're doing, you can tell them the truth and you can say that you are superior or better than somebody else and not be bragging and not be bo you know, boasting at all. You're just telling them the truth. Like, this is the, the objective truth. We do this. They do that. It's different. I'm, you know, supremely confident that people know that, you know, when we say these are the differences between X, Y, and Z, we never bring up anybody else unless first asked specifically. And even then we're hesitant to talk about anybody else. And there's no boasting. It's just, this is, this is who we are. This is what we've been able to do. Here's how we did it. And that's it. You can't hide from the fact that you've been successful. And I think, you know, sometimes people are, you know, you don't want to be too kind of passive is what I guess what I'm trying to say. Right. You know, we never hide from the fact that we are doing a really good job and we have been really successful at this. And, and I truly believe that we have, and I think we've changed things for the better. We've done it the right way. I think, you know, we've grown slowly and carefully and, you know, I mean, ask any one of my friends or family members, like I genuinely love this thing, this product that we've created Hodinkee. And I genuinely love watches that we write about and even the industry in which we, we live. But at the same time, you know, this is something that there is competition. There, there are people that are trying to kind of copy us and do things that we do. And if that's the case, and a, a brand partner or somebody of, of importance asks us about it, we're, we're not afraid to tell the truth. So I think that there's a balance between, you know, kind of being the nice guy and then being, you know, aggressive and, and self-promoting. We're never self-promoting. But again, if we honestly believe that we're doing something differently or better than somebody else, I think, I think you have to, you owe it to yourself to tell people why or, or how that, that's happening, you know? 
I'd like to read a quote from you that describes the appeal of mechanical watches uh, from, from your perspective. There's just nothing as lasting, as personal, or as complex as a great watch. These things are truly multi-generational, which almost nothing else is. Not a car, not a piece of clothing. I understand that you favor vintage watches from the middle of last century, in part because back then they were still very much tools. Can you elaborate on this? I love mechanical watches of all kinds, but you know my personal proclivities, as you mentioned, are, are towards the watches from middle 20th century, mid 20th century. The reason for that was, you know, back then, like we forget that there was no such thing as a digital clock. There's no such thing as, a, as an electronic clock. So when you're running the Olympics prior to 1968 or so, the timing is being done on a mechanical stopwatch. You know, when you're driving a, a 1953 Ferrari Le Mans or whatever at Le Mans, it's being timed on a mechanical watch. You know, it, it's amazing. And people really, really forget that very often. They think that digital clocks and, you know, kind of touch-sensitive clocks have been around forever. But that's just not true. I mean, they've been around for 40 years at most. So it's this idea that, like, these were truly functional objects. It's a, it's a really kind of romantic idea I have or, you know, r romantic picture I have in my head of, like, you know, say, 1960s Ferraris being timed on vintage wire stopwatches in France and Italy and things like that. And it just kind of brings me to a world that it was so much simpler and so much more pure. You know, there was no brand sponsorship. There was no such thing as a brand ambassador or anything like that. It was just like well-made mechanical objects, whether it be the, the car or, or the watch. That is, is the focal point. And it wasn't about pretenses. Like, you drove a Ferrari because it was the fastest car. You wore a Rolex or a Hoyer because they were the best-made chronographs. There, there wasn't anything more to it than that. Nobody knew what a Rolex or a Hoyer was. In fact, the chronograph was really a scientific device until the, the early 70s. I mean, nobody wore a chronograph unless you had a reason to, unless you were a scientist or an athlete or something like that. Uh, everybody just wore time-only, very thin watches. And again, the, the idea that these objects were, were not in any way associated with luxury was a big part of what is attractive about the older stuff. Is these things were purpose-built, and you see different dials for a medical profession uh, and racers and pilots. And these things were all, were all built with a purpose, and I think there's, there's something beautiful about that. Because now, you know, a high-end watch is absolutely a luxury item, and nobody needs them at all. I understand that vintage watches oftentimes cost as much or less than brand new watches of comparable quality. Yeah. Why do you think this is the case? Is it because relatively few people are well informed about vintage watches? I think that's it. I, I think that that's a big part of it. I mean, we're hoping to change that and working on changing that. But I think also, you know, now because the, these, you know, modern Rolex or modern Omega, whatever, are marketed and branded as a luxury object, there's margin there that, that just didn't exist before. And so, you know, when you were selling a Rolex in the 60s, you were selling a tool. When you're selling a Rolex now, you are selling something that, that gives you status and class or presents your status and class and money and wealth and everything. And so people are willing to pay more for those things now than they, they were back then. So the, the old objects you know, don't have those margins built in. And then at the same time, vintage watches is a scary world. And people you know, oftentimes do not have the knowledge or the, the resources to go deep into it without kind of being you know, taken for a ride. I uh, draw a parallel to vintage guitar amps in that uh, many vintage amps are as affordable or more affordable than brand new equivalent models, which is not the case with most vintage guitars. And I don't know if it's because guitars are just sexier or maybe one just has a closer physical connection with guitars. You hold it in your hands. Uh, but sure. I think most guitarists are willing to spend much more money on a guitar than on an amp, despite the amp arguably playing a much larger role in the overall sound. 
Do you see any similar odd dynamics in the vintage watch market? Are there particular brands, eras, or types of watches that command much higher or much lower prices than you'd expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the kind of the biggest curiosity I have with a vintage watch world is the lack of value of gold watches. So gold watches, you know, in the 50s and 60s, this is the most elegant, most prestigious thing you can have. And now everybody wants steel, and I'm talking about vintage watches. So if you have a steel Patek Philippe chronograph, which was literally born as a tool. I mean, there was no other purpose than that. Patek was a high-end manufacturer back then, but this is a tool watch. Then you have a gold one. The steel one is worth significantly more. And that, to me, doesn't... I mean, it makes sense on the sense that I, like, I prefer to wear steel because I'm just a more casual guy. I rarely get dressed up, and they're a little bit more durable. But, I mean, gold is, is truly precious. And, you know, people saying that the steel is a better buy and all that, I, I, don't, I don't really believe in that. So the biggest curiosity for me is a lack of value in gold and precious metal watches from the 50s and 60s. I, I get it because people think steel is cool and you can wear it every day and it's white, so people don't know that it's an expensive watch or whatever. Right. Um, but it, it's very curious to me how, how undervalued solid yellow gold watches are uh, today. It's, it's mind-blowing at times. Interesting. Well, as you mentioned, collecting, I think, pretty much anything vintage carries risk and, and making a wise purchase is contingent on being very well-informed or having access to a reliable resource that's that's well informed. How did you work through this the first few times that you purchased vintage watches? You just kind of hope for the best. To be totally honest, with you. The, the very first vintage watch I bought was at an antiquarium auction. I was bidding on the phone for my cubicle at UBS. Uh, it was an Omega Ranchero. Uh, I bid. I bought it for what I thought was two thousand dollars, and then all of a sudden there was the hammer fee, which I didn't know about. And on top of that, New York State taxes. So it ended up costing me around three thousand dollars, and that's a lot of money for for a young guy. And I, you know, I, I made it happen. I was able to buy it, but it was, it was a push. And I think with watches, you know, nobody was hand-holding hand me, me through this. So it was just me learning this stuff. And I think that's why I was able to kind of learn so much so quickly. I just kind of dove in head first and hoped for the best. Um, but, you know, I really took the time and I, I've lost hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of my weekend and personal time at the expense of, uh, you know, to, to learn about watches. So I just went head first and I really, when I'm into something, I go, I go really deep very quickly. I understand that you look for watches that have interesting stories, which uh -huh. might sometimes mean that they're not in pristine condition. Do you find that a certain amount of wear is sometimes even desirable in a vintage watch, or will you sometimes pass on a watch if it's not in great condition? There's a balance, and you buy different things for different reasons. If I have a uh, universal chronograph, actually, I own a universal chronograph that belonged to a guy named Henry Graves, or belonged to his grandson. Henry Graves was the most important collector, really saved Patek Philippe in the 30s and thereby saved the watch industry. And that watch is not in great shape. It's never been polished, but it's not in great shape. But it has a special meaning to me and the watch industry, so I bought it. Uh, I've got other watches that are in, in better shape, but have no personal you know, story. And that's just, they're just a nice object to look at. So it, I buy, as I said, I buy different things for different reasons. There's no specific strategy or kind of formula that, that I look for. I just look for things that have charm, you know, look for things that have some beauty, whether it is the provenance uh, or it is the, the condition of a watch. So th there's no, you know, real rhyme or reason. Uh, and like I said, I've got things that are in mint condition that are just beautiful. And I've got things that are in, you know, kind of seemingly terrible condition, but have a wonderful story behind them. Moving away from vintage watches, I'd like to ask you about the Swatch System 51. I understand they came out in 2013 as the first mechanical watches that were fully assembled by machines. In preparing for this, for this conversation, I read that it takes 28 and a half seconds to fully assemble one of these watches. I understand the admiration for the genius of the manufacturing process, 
But given that much of the appeal of mechanical watches is their fine craftsmanship and manual assembly, how do you feel about the System 51 line? You know, I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I, I bought one the day it came out or as soon as I could when I was over in Switzerland. And I think, you know, these are wonderful feeder devices to get people interested in watches overall. And so the same could be true for even the Apple Watch or the Tegel or Connected Watch or any, you know, Google-based uh, smartwatch. You know, I think the idea of having something on your wrist that in particular is mechanical uh, is a great thing no matter how it's assembled. Uh, and again, these are $100 watches, $150 watches that will allow people to understand what a mechanical watch is without having to spend the thousands of dollars that you might have to pay to get a Rolex or anything like that. So I, I'm a true supporter of the System 51 and any lower and less expensive mechanical watch for that matter. My brother used to constantly send me articles, most of which were from Hodinkee, in an attempt to convince me to start buying mechanical watches. Yeah. Uh, after he died, I looked up the last list of watches that he sent me. Uh, I had asked him to recommend watches under a grand. I reviewed his list, and a Shinola Runwell, which is made in Detroit, caught my eye. I read about it and was surprised that it has a quartz movement, which seemed to go against everything my brother used to preach to me about the appeal of mechanical movements. What's your take on watches that are not inexpensive, yet use quartz movements? You know, I've got a, a mixed kind of uh, response to that. You know, I, I think in some cases, you know, there, there are very high-end quartz movements. I mean, you know, Patek made an amazing quartz movement. We have one on the shop right now. It's $36,000. It's fantastic. You're paying for the innovation and the R&D there. You know, if you're using an off-the-shelf quartz movement, I, I'm not the biggest fan of them. But again, if it gets people excited about wearing a watch again, how could I not be for it? You know, even, even if it's Shinola or somebody like that, how could I not support somebody that is doing – uh, our work for us. You know, they're essentially saying, hey, buy the Shinola now, and then maybe next time you'll buy a Tag Heuer, and then after that, they'll make it, and then roll it, some Patek or whatever. So, you know, while it's not necessarily what, what I would buy for me or necessarily what I would recommend for, for somebody trying to get into watches, as I said, I, I can't complain about anybody, brand or person, that is helping the watch world survive. Going back to mechanical watches for a moment, I'm going to take a, a moment to admit how ignorant I am about the topic. Sure. Uh, You're better uh, off. Un, an automatic watch costs more than its manual equivalent, which makes sense. Are there advantages? If, if I'm considering an automatic and a manual version of the same watch, are there advantages to owning the automatic other than the convenience of it of not having to wind it? I should say that there are some caveats to, to what you just said. There. So in most cases, that is true. But in many cases, mechanical watches are the most high-end watches because purists tend to prefer them. There's a few reasons for that. The number one is that, well, there's two. The one reason would be that it's thinner because uh, an automatic movement has a rotor on the back. So just by nature of that alone, it, you have to add thickness to the case because the rotor is spinning on the back of the movement. The other thing is that a uh, you know, mechanical watch, manual watches rather came before automatic, so they're a little bit more pure. And on top of that, without the rotor, it allows you to see the finishing. And by finishing, I mean the handwork done on the movements much easier. Uh, so if you have a full rotor on the back of a watch, you will be blocking half the movement at any given time, no matter what. So manually wound watches tend to be the choice of uh, higher-end collectors because you can see more of the work that goes into them. If you're buying a watch you wear every day and just as a tool, automatic makes more sense, no question about it. But, but manual is more of a pure choice, I would say. And I know many people, including myself, that actually really enjoy waking up in the morning, getting dressed, taking a shower, and then winding up their watch. It's just like a little cathartic kind of uh, therapeutic, I should say, um, you know, action that you can take every morning. In your experience, how much does your typical mechanical watch enthusiast care about the accuracy of how a watch keeps time? 
it's actually a really interesting question. Uh, very little, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. You know, there, there are people. What's interesting about watch collectors is that there's so many different facets to to why you could be interested in watches. You could be into it for the mechanics, like as you just mentioned. Some people do care tremendously about the chronometric performance of a watch. Most people don't. Other people care about the design. Some people care about the engineering. Some care about the investment potential. So I would say the potentially the smallest percentage of all the, the interests that I just uh, mentioned would be those that care about the precision. I mean, do they want them to be accurate and be within a few minutes uh, a week or a month? Absolutely. But you'll find most cases, in most cases, you know, the average, you know, high-end watch today is. So it's not really a point of contention with, with most uh, people these days. My uh, brother was just starting his watch collection, and his favorite watch was a watch from Nomos Glass Huta. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to store it long-term. What is the proper way to store a mechanical watch long-term if it's rarely, if ever, going to be worn? It's no less simple than, or no more simple than just putting it away in a safe or a drawer or a safety box or anything like that. They're very simple. Uh, and a Nomos is, is an incredibly well-built watch, and they will last forever uh, with very little care. Uh, I mean, the one thing that you could do if you really want to make sure that it was functioning at all times is just oil it, take it in for service every, say, three or four years. But really nothing beyond that. You don't need a winder. You don't need anything like that. I would just put it away in a locked you know, box, and it's as simple as that. Does your passion for analog, vintage, and well-made things extend beyond watches? I understand that you own a beautiful vintage coupe, so I know it, it sounds like it applies to cars as well. To what else does it apply? The two other passions that I have outside of watches are, are old cars, and, and when I say old, I mean you know totally analog cars, uh, and then cameras as well. So typical kind of guy things that, that go hand in hand. I have many friends that are in, interested in all three. A little boring in the sense that like this is all totally expected, but at the same time, that there's so much you can learn about both that it's just hours and hours of deep, deep research that I spent when I bought that Porsche. Old cars are just so wonderful because you can sit in them and just be totally engulfed by them uh, and the smell and the, the sound. And, you know, my Porsche, for example, you can't not drive it and have oil on you. Like, no matter what you do, <laughs> even if you're not working on the car, oil will end up on you somewhere. Nobody knows how, but it just happens. Uh, and there's something very charming about that. And, you you know, it's another one of those things where the Porsche is a very, very simple car. And, and that's what people don't remember is that Porsche back then was half the price of any other sports car. I mean, they were not an expensive car company. They were really for young guys that wanted to have a little bit of fun. And they were not powerful. I mean, my car has 75 horsepower. And wow. Driving one of these old cars is the most fun you can have at 45 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, there's no power to it, but it feels like you're going 1,000 miles an hour when you're driving it. And there is nothing to it. The radio doesn't work. There's no heat, certainly no power steering or brakes. It's just, you know, a few belts and a few gears, and, and that's about it. It's very similar to the watches that I wear. Uh, and there is something amazing about, you know, seeing these things in this world because they're so beautiful and they were designed with so much care and passion back then. And then you, you come in and you park it next to, you know, a modern car and you see this thing that is made out of plastic slapped together, you know, boring standard color, you know, totally disposable in, in some way. Uh, and then you see this beautifully handcrafted, you know, amazing, fully hand assembled car that is, is really no more expensive. You know, I, when I bought the Porsche, you know, it cost less than a than a BMW 3 Series. And it's, you know, people don't understand that. You know, you have to be willing to put in the time to make it work. And, you know, the occasional toe is going to happen and things like that. But it, it to me, it, it's totally worth it for sure. It's, it's cathartic for me, no question about it, to, to get into the, the old car. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot and I'm very grateful. 
No, it's completely my pleasure, and uh, I'm happy to help with anything in the future as well. This was fun.